Okay, 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, all you freshmen, that's right in front of 2 Peter. And want to make sure we help our freshmen out here. Okay, 1 Peter, chapter number 1, and we're going to dive right into this. Thank you for coming tonight, good crowd, I certainly appreciate it. Tomorrow night we'll begin the specific application, but we've been laying a foundation, and we're going to do that again tonight, uh, but get into a little bit of the application so you see the connection biblically here in just a moment. Now for those here that were here in the Sunday school time, we went in James chapter 2 and we dealt with that very important verse there verse 22 seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect and we pointed out that Abraham uh, his obedience that's going to be the same thing as works uh, they work together faith and obedience work together and faith uh, works uh, obedience was also means to God doing a perfecting work in Abraham's faith. And so we talked about how important obedience is when it comes to the Christian life. Now, obedience or attempted obedience without faith means you're going to end up defeated, no doubt about it. But faith without obedience is dead. That's what James chapter 2 is trying to tell us as believers. If you're trying to live a life of faith, but you're not going to obey, it ain't, ain't, ain't going to work. And so 1 Peter is going to address this. Now, when I come to the book of 1 Peter several years ago, I, uh, for whatever reason, I think it was back at one of the earlier conferences, I was assigned, I think, a topic of personal separation. In other words, as a Christian, living a life that is biblically, um, uh, biblical applications as we talked about this morning, and the issue of the worldliness and things of that nature. Thank you, Dr. Paul. He must have, uh, uh, I don't know, just anticipated a problem. I don't, do I sound that bad, Dr. Paul? I'm not sure. Okay, I'm just teasing. Okay, but I do appreciate it. You know, it's like this. If I didn't have the water, I'd need it. Now that I got the water, I'm not going to need it. Okay, that's called Murphy's Laws. I was preaching to somewhere here in the last couple of days. Somebody needs to shoot that guy Murphy. Okay, but anyway, he causes us trouble all the time. But, um, but anyway, when I, I was assigned the issue of personal separation, and I came to, I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? Let's just go to 1 Peter. That's the passage that tells us to be holy like God's holy. Man, let's do that passage, and that'll I'll just exegete the passage, make application, and that'll be my conference session on personal separation. And so I went to 1 Peter chapter number 1, and may I say this, in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, I'm going to find out what the first imperative in the book of 1 Peter is. Now, I don't necessarily do this in every book, but sometimes I'll go through a book, and I'll have a, what's called an analytical Greek New Testament, and I will mark the moods of the different verbs. Okay, and one of the moods is called the imperative mood, which is translated as a command, and sometimes it's very interesting to see what the commands are. And uh, so I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to come there and find out what the commands are in that passage and I was pretty sure I'm thinking I know what that first command is going to be the first command is going to be be holy well wouldn't that make a good message man the first command in the book of first Peter is be holy wow well that preach wouldn't it well I came to the book and guess what it wasn't the first command it's the second command and the third command and I learned something and I learned this that the very first command in the book of first Peter is absolutely essential if you're going to obey the second or the third. And I'd like to preach on what I'm going to call the forgotten commandment. The forgotten commandment. Because tomorrow and uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll deal with some of the big issues. I mentioned modesty and probably in media, and we'll deal with music. I mean, after all, when we're throwing grenades, let's just throw them all. You know what I'm talking about? We'll just let the word go out there and you'll have fun. Okay, so we'll just have fun Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I'm just talking, I mean, we're just going to look biblically at some of these contemporary issues that we face on a daily basis. 
What does the Bible say? Do you think God's interested in what clothes are hanging in your closet? You think that might happen? I think you'll see that tonight that God is interested. You think God's interested in what YouTube videos you watch? You think God's interested in what movies you look at? You think God's interested in what media you consume? In a moment we're going to find out in this passage of Scripture that God is concerned about that. You think God might be concerned about the musical choices you make uh, in your life? We're going to find out in a moment God is concerned about your musical choices. And the thing I wanted you to understand, you notice we didn't start off just preaching on some of these issues because I wanted to lay in a very important foundation for us to understand how these things become life changers. And as I mentioned this morning, faith triggers are those areas of our life that God challenges in the Word of God. And when we depend upon Jesus and obey Him, there's something supernatural like we saw in James 2 that begins to happen. Man, God perfects our faith. I want to ask you a question. Do you think a Christian can be a mature Christian and not pray? And the answer is, well, no. Do you think a Christian could be a mature Christian and never crack a Bible unless he came to church? And the answer is, well, no. Do you think a Christian could be a mature Christian and never give, or give very little to the Lord's work? And the answer is, well, no, that's not going to work. Do you think a Christian could be a mature Christian and never give the gospel to anybody? And the answer is, well, no, that's not going to work. Now, pretty much in broad evangelicalism, everybody would agree with that. You could preach that, any church preaches the gospel on those four things, and they'd say, amen, brother. Man, if you're not praying, if you're not in the Word, if you're not given, if you're not concerned about the lost and concerned about the gospel going into all the world, then certainly you couldn't be a mature believer. But there's one more. Now, I'm sure there's more faith triggers than this, but these seem to be the big rocks to me, the big ones. And the one more is this, what I'm going to call personal separation. Or could we say it this, separation from the world. <laughs> Can a person be a mature believer and not be separated from the world? And the answer is, I don't think so. I mean, God tells us big stuff like, don't be conformed to this world, be not conformed to this world, love not the world. And I'm telling you, we're going to deal with some commands here tonight uh, that are pretty evident that God's interested in our lifestyle. Did you know that? And so we're just going to go through this. So here's the point. And the point is, I believe in certain parts of evangelicalism, broad evangelicalism. If you don't know what that means, just ask somebody who looks smart. Uh, I'm, uh, but at, uh, but at, in, in broad evangelicalism, I believe one of the big problems is we have a lot of faith triggers that are there, but I think one of the big ones missing is, is uh, a, a, a desire to biblically follow the Lord and be separated from the world, uh, to be what God wants us to be. As we're going to see in a moment, be holy in all manner of conversation. So let's look at this one because this certainly has fallen on hard times. When I was growing up as a, as a kid, going in revival meetings, man, evangelists would come through, and I want to tell you something: uh, they would preach on this stuff. I mean, stuff that uh, man, we'd we'd hold our breath to preach on today. Uh, in fact, I remember Dr. Phil Schuler, who was a good friend of my dad's. Uh, he was telling a story that one time he was sitting on the church. A platform with a friend of his, a pastor out in Colorado, well-known pastor. And he looked out, he saw all the teenagers had long hair, all the guys did. This is back in the 60s. How many of you remember the 60s? Oh, what I'm talking about? Anybody? Okay. Obviously the older people, uh, the long hair on the guys. And the girls had miniskirts on. Uh, they were, he looked out in the church, he saw all that. And he looked over to the pastor and said, you've got a problem in this church. He said, you've got a bunch of your teenagers got long hair and you've got a bunch of your, uh, your uh, young ladies are in miniskirts. 
And the uh, pastor said, you know what, I guess so. I guess he's kind of like the frog in the kettle. He was a pastor and just didn't see it happening and just, it just happened. Well, I don't know how that could happen, but it evidently did. And he said, go after it, Phil. And so Phil Schuler went after it. He said, by the end of the week, he said, the hairs were, the haircuts were, uh, they, they were cut and the mini skirts weren't there anymore. They had skirts uh, down in a modest length. Okay. Now, in today's culture, you know a lot of people say, oh, that was a bunch of legalism. I'm telling you right this. If those teenagers were confronted with unbiblical attitude and they took it a step of faith to believe God, in dependence upon God to change their lifestyle, there's no way that could be negative. See, that would be life-changing for them. See, we've lost that dynamic. Many young people get saved, whatever, but they continue to go on with no difference than the world. And I will tell you, you cannot be a mature believer and not obey the Bible when it comes to personal holiness or worldliness. So we're going to deal with some of these issues. So I want you to understand. Now, those might seem minor, long hair and miniskirt. Well, miniskirt, I don't think it'd be minor, but I'm not sure long hair would be either if you look at 1 Corinthians 11. But back in the 60s, those were things that crept into the church. That's when I was growing up, and I remember that to some degree. Obviously, um, those things had to be dealt with, and preachers would hit those things. And I remember back when preachers would preach on all kinds of stuff. And uh, honestly, people would make decisions. And, I, and many people will tell you there was a decision they made to deal with some worldliness in their life that was absolutely life-changing. See, because it's a faith trigger. It's part of what we talked about this morning. Faith and obedience work together to perfect your faith. So let's deal with 1 Peter because it's going to help lay the groundwork and how this happens. Because all of us, let's just be honest, with modern culture inundating us, if we're not careful, guess what? We become desensitized. And I'll be honest with you. There used to be givens in independent Baptist churches. Now, some of you may be, uh, you know, all oh, this independent Baptist church is kind of a new thing to me. And certainly that's why we have starting point to kind of help you understand historically where we are and the whole, uh, whole thing. But I will tell you, those of you that understand a little bit about the independent Baptist movement, there used to be givens. There are no givens today. None. There's not a whole lot of things to distinctly make the independent Baptist church movement. I'm talking about personal separation a whole lot different from other churches. I mean, I'm telling you, if there's ever a day we need to be confronted with the fact we need to believe God enough to follow Him when it comes to what He says about the world and godly living. So we're going to deal with some of these things, and then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to preach on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, and I've got an unbelievable plan. You're not going to believe this. Thursday morning, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. And I'll tell you what, I really had a great plan. I'm flying to the West Coast. Yes. I mean, you're not going to be able to find me. If you're mad at me, I'll come back in December, and by that time you'll be cooled off. Okay, so that's the plan. Okay, so I'm just going to preach. We'll just throw it out there. And then if you're uh, upset about it, I'll be glad to I'll make an appointment with you in uh, early December. Okay, does that sound fair? Okay, so I just want to be fair about it all. We're going to have a great time. I'm telling you, I'm going to have a good time. Okay, I hope you'll have a good time too. Okay, so let's, uh, let's lay the foundation. And here it is, verse number 13 gives us the very first command in the book of 1 Peter. It says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's not a command. It's actually a participle that hinges on the command. Be sober. That's actually not a command either. Uh, but it hinges on the command. And here's the command, and hope. Now, in the Greek language, when a participle links to the main verb, 
if the main verb is an imperative, it does take on imperative or imperative force. And that's what's happening with those two participles. But the main, the verb, the first verb or command in the book of 1 Peter is hope. Let me just tell you this. You cannot obey the command to be holy if you do not obey the command to hope. You say, preacher, that makes no sense to me. That's why I'm preaching the message, okay? So it will make sense. Now, those two participles on the front part are extremely important. Notice the first one says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, one of the problems with that word picture is, in 2022 American uh, culture, we don't do that. Now, there are places in the world that do. Anybody here come from a culture that knows what it means to gird up your loins? Anyone at all? Okay. Back years ago, my dad in the mid-1960s went around the world. He and uh, some preachers uh, literally, when I mean went around the world, they literally went around the world. They kept flying until they came back to where they were. My dad proved that the flat earthers are wrong. He proved it. Okay, because he went completely around the world. I know some of you are shocked by that, but anyway, he did. And he came around the world, and while he was there, he ended up uh, going around the world, he ended up in India during some of the language riots. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The language riots, 1960s. I think they were trying to make a national language and people were upset because their language wasn't chosen. I don't remember all of it. And so my dad, being a good tourist, along with his two American friends, Ed Nelson and Charles Holmesher of Neighborhood Bible Time fame, uh, they were uh, in India and they saw a group of men rioting. I guess in India at the time, only men rioted. The women didn't, but the men rioted. And so they were, uh, they thought, wow. They, so they got out there big. You remember back when they had those big 35 mil millimeters, you know, I'm talking about they were huge beasts, you know. And so they're big, uh, great American tourists, and they're taking pictures of these Indian men rioting. And my dad said, all of a sudden, those Indian men lost interest in rioting. And they became very interested in the three American tourists who were taking their pictures. One preacher said to the other two, let's get out of here. Wingtips and all, they begin running down the street, okay? If you don't know what wingtips are, ask somebody older, they'll know what I'm talking about. I mean, they began running down the street. And my dad said to me later, he said, Jim, we would have been in big trouble except for one thing. The men had to gird up their loins. He said it gave us just enough time to get out of there. In other words, they had to reach down those long flowing robes. They had to pull them up, and I don't know how they do it. They had to tie them off so their legs would be free to pursue the American preachers. But by the time they did that, they were long gone. So what does gird up the loins of your mind mean? It means this. Whatever, uh, uh, every problem you and I have in our Christian life, it always comes from wrong thinking. Do you know you have spiritual problems in your life? If you haven't figured it out, you probably, uh, hopefully, uh, you'll come and continue to study the Word of God. We all, have, we all have problems. And the problems that you and I have, I'm telling you right now, they all call, come from unbiblical thinking. And do you know what unbiblical thinking does? It's just like a long flowing robe. It trips you up. And so you know what preaching is? Preaching is confronting unbiblical thinking. You've been sitting in a message and the preacher's preaching and it's like a light bulb moment. Wow, I haven't been thinking biblically. And you make a decision. You know what a decision is? A decision is reaching down, grabbing those thought processes that have in the past hindered you and tripped you up and tying them off so they don't, they don't trip you up anymore. In other words, being uh, girding up the loins of your mind is what we might call the commencement of biblical thinking. It's making a decision. That's the altar. It's when you come forward and you say, God, man, I've got an unforgiving spirit. God, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm forgiving that person. You know what I'm talking about? 
It's coming forward and saying, you know, God, I've been trying hard to live the Christian life, and you've opened my eyes that it's not effort uh, uh, in and of itself. It's dependence on Jesus, and I'm going to change my thinking on this. Okay, you tracking with me? You see, many of us make decisions all the time. We're here in preaching. All of a sudden, we realize, wait a second. I'm not thinking right on that, and I'm going to start thinking right. So we reach down. We grab those unbiblical thought process. We bring them up so they no longer hinder Christian progress. Now, then the Bible says, be sober. He changes pictures. The first picture is an event, okay? No doubt about it, girding up the loins of your mind is pretty much an event. It's not a long process, it's an event. But you know, be sobriety is not an event. Sobriety is a condition. And anybody that's ever struggled with alcohol understands that. Sobriety is the condition you're in. And so what God is doing, he's changing picture. And the interesting thing about the second participle, it is in the present tense. And of course, that particular tense generally has the idea of being durative or a process, which we all understand that's what sobriety is. It's, it's not an event. It's not a crisis. It's a condition. It's, it's something that, you know, you live in sobriety. It's a, an amount of time. Okay, so the idea would be make those decisions where you get up the loins of your mind, reject wrong thinking, embrace right thinking, and you know what he says? Maintain it. In other words, do not allow the alcohol of unbiblical thinking to inebriate your brain. Maintain the sobriety or the right thinking of Bible truth. That's what you need to do. Be literally, the idea of, the, of the, our participle is be continually being sober. So he's uh, talking about, so it's like this, friends. Whenever uh, this, this whole uh, verb here in just a moment, we're going to talk about hoping. It, it thrives in the atmosphere of a person who is constantly pulling up wrong thinking, tying it off, and maintaining biblical thinking so it becomes a part of their condition. It becomes a condition of, could we say, biblical sobriety. <laughs> Now, it is in that condition of really in your brain, literally having a hunger for Bible truth, rejecting wrong thinking, embracing wrong th right thinking, biblical thinking, and maintaining it, it is in that particular atmosphere that we can hope. Now, hope is the main verb, and it's the first command in the book of 1 Peter if you want to use the imperative mood. And the word hope, you say, preacher, what does that mean? Here's the problem with hope. In, in, in American English, it means different. For instance, I, I know a few months ago, I, I could just sense it. I, I, of course, I, many of you know I grew up in Chicago, for better or for worse. Most of the time it's for worse. But anyway, I grew up in Chicago, and so I still all my sports loyalties are down there. I don't talk about it a lot. Uh, I certainly don't talk about football because I'll be made fun of. Okay, but anyway, uh, but... Um, uh, so kind of been a bad year for the Cubs, et cetera, and uh, been a bad year for the White Sox. So I've kind of been watching the Brewers just kind of from a distance. And a few months ago, you know what people were thinking? Man, this might be the year. Yeah, I hope the Brew Crew is going to do it this year. Yeah, they got it. They, they might be able to put this thing together. This might be the year. And you know what many of you in this room were doing? You were hoping that the Brewers would get in the World Series and win it. And do you know what? Right about now, your hopes are becoming dashed. You know what I'm talking about? Like, why did they trade Hater? That makes no sense. You know things like that? Have you thought things like that? Well, again, I don't, if you're not a Brewers fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, you see hopes. We all have hopes. Some of you hopes your team's going to win the World Series. And look, now I just saw Acosta there. He's hoping for the Mets. They're actually playing some baseball. Unbelievable. They might do it. Okay, so, you know, everybody's got hopes. You all have different hopes in this room. Some of you, it's not sports. 
Some of you hope the midterms will kind of be one certain color. You know what I'm talking about? You're looking not for a wave. You're looking for a tsunami, okay? You got some hopes. Now, we all have hopes, all kinds of hopes. I'm telling you, look at each one of these college freshmen. They have hopes, too. It's like hopes, I'm going to make it. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to be able to get out of this thing without flunking out. Okay, they got hopes. Uh, so, you know, the juniors and seniors, I can tell you what their hopes. They're hoping that one day they'll get married. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that couple's retreat interested them. That's why Pastor had to say that. Okay, guys, it's not quite time yet. Okay, everybody's got hopes. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? And some of them are unrealistic. I'm not sure the juniors and seniors. Maybe the marriage thing's unrealistic. I don't know. Okay, just depends on who they are. But, uh, you know, yeah, everybody's got hopes. And the truth is, in the American sense, hopes are kind of like, well, maybe, probably won't. I mean, World Series, Brewers, that's probably not going to happen. You know, we, we, get, we get hopes, but, you know, they kind of get dashed. That is not the Bible concept of hope. I like D. Edmund Heberts, who's one of my favorite commentaries. In fact, before I preached this morning on James, I read through that passage, D. Edmund Hebert, although I don't agree with all of his interpretation, it is so linguistically helpful. And, uh, but anyway, D. Edmund Hebert, uh, in his uh, commentary on 1 Peter, defines hope with two words, and I love this definition. He's got a different, word for the, a different definition for the noun hope. This is the verb hope. Uh, have you ever noticed that, that sometimes there's a word that is a noun and a verb? You ever seen that? In fact, I, I remember a preacher was preaching. I don't know why I'm going to say this, but there was a preacher preaching one time, and he was a perfectionist, and he was talking about his marriage where his wife wasn't a perfectionist. And one day he went to his wife and said, Honey, has it ever occurred to you that dust is also a verb? Okay, but anyway, uh, you'll get that if you think about that. Okay, so hopefully, husbands, if you're the perfectionist, uh, you can one day go to your... Okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Okay, uh, but you get the idea. It woke you back up. Okay, so dust is a verb, and it's a noun. Okay, so some of you ladies need to remember that it's a verb, too. Okay, so some of you guys need to remember that it's a... Uh, 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 well, anyway, where are we, where do we get on that? How do we get on that? Oh, yeah, hope, hope, hope. In this case, hope is a verb. And the definition for the verb is expectant reliance. Expectant reliance. It's not just reliance. You can rely on something and be pretty much like, I'm not sure this is going to work. You ever got in your car and thought, I'm not sure. That's pretty much every Bible college student. Every time they get in their car, I'm not sure we're going to get there. You, you, can, you can be depending, relying on the vehicle, but you're not very expectant. See, but the word hope is not just reliant, it's expectant. So it's the idea of, hey, I'm expecting, and I'm relying, but I'm also expecting it to happen. So hope is expectant reliance. So we say, preacher, what are we supposed to hope on? Well, the passage tells us, hope to the end. Now, that word to the end is very interesting because we used it this morning. Remember when we talked about your faith being complete? I don't know if you remember that the root word, that the whole word deal with the word complete comes from the same word Jesus uttered when he said, it is finished. It's the same word here. To the, to the end has the idea of completely. Or could we say, with abandon. <laughs> so we got whatever this hope means, this expected reliance, it needs to be completely, with abandon. And he says, hope to the end for what? For the grace. Now, I know preaching at Falls, I don't have to say a lot about grace because you hear a lot about it, now, which is a wonderful thing. Because I'm telling you, friends, that's the Christian life. You know what the Christian life is? God's constantly giving. 
You and I would absolutely be nothing when it comes to living the Christian life if it wasn't for the grace of God. <laughs> grace of God is not just, I mean, salvation. Believe me, if all the grace of God was to secure our deliverance from hell, wash our sins away, that'd be wow. But you know, grace continues every day. Grace is when God intersects with man. It's when God gives us what we don't deserve. And can I tell you, if God ever gives you something, you didn't deserve it. God's grace is a remarkable thing. And he's constantly gracing us. If I could take that term of that noun and turn it into a verb, and I know I just kind of rattled the English teachers, but yeah, God's grace, he constantly is gracing us. Sometimes he graces us with wisdom. Sometimes he graces us with comfort. Sometimes he graces us with strength. Sometimes he graces us with peace in the midst of the storm. Sometimes he graces us with confidence. Sometimes he graces us with, uh, with joy. Sometimes he graces us with who, whatever we need in the moment. But the Bible is telling us here, not only rely on God's grace, God's giving heart, expect it with abandon. Like I said this morning, you know what our two problems largely are in the Christian life? We don't really believe, we don't really know who God is, and we really don't really know who we are. We got the wrong concept of God, and we got the wrong concept of us. One of the reasons I believe that God's leading us to this particular theme this year is, by now, I'll tell you, friends, it's a good idea for us to understand who God is. And I realize it's inexhaustible, and I don't know about you, when that little video clip was going on with S.M. Lockridge, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, I got stirred. <laughs> And he didn't even come close to describing who God is. So many of our problems come because we do not really deep down believe that God loves us unconditionally, that God is wanting us to come to him even at our worst moment, that God wants to cleanse us, he wants to forgive us. You don't have to go through penance to get God's forgiveness. Did you know that? You know how you get God's forgiveness? You get honest. <laughs> God, I'm dry. God, I'm dusty. God, I got a problem. God, I'm struggling with wrong thoughts. God, I'm struggling with that person. God, I need you. It's just getting honest. As I've said this morning, it's not like you got to fix all your sins before God will meet with you. You need God to fix your sins. It's coming to him. And so uh, the idea is God's constantly there. He's the gracer. He's the one who gives us what we need. And God says you need to expect it. You need to depend on his grace, his strength, his enablement, his wisdom, his peace. Whatever you need, you need to expect it and you need to depend on it. With abandon. Now that's a command. Now notice if you would please what it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I know there's going to be all kinds of interpretation of that and most are going to look at, at that as eschatological or way in the future. The problem is the grace that is being brought unto you is in the present tense. Personally, I think, even if you say revelation is in the future that when Jesus comes back, and it certainly is used that way, but there's other usages when I looked up the word in the New Testament, there's other times when it simply means Jesus reveals himself now. And I've wondered if this is not talking about that God's grace is literally being brought unto us when Jesus is revealed for who he is. And I will tell you something, friends. When you spend time with God, and that's one of the reasons the spending time with God is so emphasized here, and you begin to experience the reality, God begins to reveal himself to you. I will tell you, you get the idea that God's grace is constantly uh, being brought unto you. When you, when you are living in the reality of Jesus Christ. 
and his revelation. <laughs> now, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but I wondered if it doesn't mean that. It certainly is a principle, and the principle is this. When Jesus shows up, there's always bunches of grace. <laughs> now, you say, okay, preacher, I think I'm getting this. So the Christian life is, yeah, when I'm confronted with unbiblical thinking, I pull up the wrong thinking, and then I maintain it by uh, continuing. That's where meditation, memorization comes in, maintaining biblical sobriety, not letting the alcohol or the inebriation of unbiblical thinking to reinvade the brain. And then in that atmosphere... Living a dependence upon Jesus, expecting him to show up and expecting him to give me the grace to live the Christian life. Now, that brings us then to the application. We see the command, but I want you to see now, if we could please, in verse number 14, uh, see how this all plays out. Verse number 14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Now, as obedient children is a very interesting phrase, and honestly, it ties into the passage we dealt with this morning in James chapter number 2. It literally is the construction of children of obedience, okay? The idea there is that it's children who are marked by obedience. So this whole passage, I believe, on that little phrase, crumbles if you don't get that phrase. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? I want to ask you this. Are you a child of God that is marked by obedience. Now, what I mean by that, it's, 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 not a, it's not a child of God says, God, you show me what, what you want me to do, and I'll make a decision whether or not I want to do it. That's not the idea. The idea is, God, you show me from your word what the Bible says. You show me clearly what your will is for my life, and I'm going to do it. Why? Because I'm a child of God, and I want to, by the grace of God, be marked by obedience. Are you? So it's like this. Do you come with the jury out? Well, let's see what the Bible says, and then I'll make a decision whether I want to obey it or not. That's not what it's talking about. And that's not who it's talking about. And basically, your Christian life won't work until you've reached the point where you say, God, whatever it is, it doesn't matter where you want me to go, what you want me to do, whatever your word tells me, whatever I sense your spirit making clear, man, I'm going to do it. I want to be a child of God marked by obedience. Now, if you get a hold of that, then that's what the foundation is for the rest of the passage here. Now, there's going to be two applications, and we're setting the groundwork for the coming messages. Okay, so notice what it says. As children, uh, obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Number one, a godly appearance. You know what the interesting word, uh, the thing about the word of fashioning is? It has nothing to do with the inside. It is only things to do is with the outside. Do you know that it's the same word translated in Romans 12 to, and be not conformed? Same word. That particular word has the idea of not being on the outside what you are on the inside. Do you know that on the outside, you can act like what you aren't on the inside? For instance, I could go down to the ice rink here, the Pettit Center here, and I could put on a Chicago Blackhawks Hockey gear. I mean, I could spend whatever, a thousand bucks, get a jersey, get all the pads, and I could get out there and I could act like I'm an NHL player. But inside, I'm not. And it wouldn't take you long to figure out that I'm masquerading. You with me on this? <laughs> you see, you can act on the outside like you're something that you're not on the inside. <laughs> and here's what God is saying. When you're born again, blood-bought, on your way to heaven, righteous in the sight of God, in union with the holy God, what he's saying is, don't act like you're not. 
Don't fashion yourselves. And of course, the word fashion clearly talking about the external. Don't fashion yourselves like you used to when you weren't saved. That's what he's saying. It's like this, friends. Sometimes people say, well, preacher, you know, God looks on the outward. I mean, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And their inference is the outside doesn't matter. And you know what my answer to that is? If God looks at the heart and man looks on the outward appearance, you know what that means? Man looks on the outward appearance. That's what it means. You say, Rich, what are you saying? I'm saying this. Your next door neighbor can't see your heart, but he sure can see your outside. And I want to ask you this. Are you a good advertisement for what's going on in your life? See, that's what he's saying here. He's simply saying the outside does matter. Why? Because people can't see the inside. And so are you an honest billboard for Jesus Christ? Or are you a fake? Are you so concerned about what the world says, you're going to dress in their uniform and, describe and, just, and hide the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying. He said, don't do that. He said, don't act like, dress like, like you used to before you were saved when you were dictated by your former lust, your former desires. He said, you need to be on the, inside, on the outside what you are on the inside. Now, we'll talk about practical application. Some of that you have to work out in your own life. But the point, friends, is simply your outside does matter. That's what it says. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. might help. Years ago, I was at a church in Kansas. And the pastor came to me and said, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, I don't know how to take this, but he said, i got a senior in my church. He said, they're pretty much a Sunday only, morning only family. And he said, uh, this kid, he goes to the school right down the way. The seniors have lunch. They can leave campus. And I don't know why, but he wants to interview you. Uh, you game? I said, sure, fine, whatever. Yeah, send him down. So he set up the time, and sure enough, the kid showed up, and, and he had his notepad, and he had his pencil or his pen, and, and uh, he asked me a bunch of questions, and I'm thinking, no, that's not why he's here. Then he asked me another question, huh, that's not why he's here. I was kind of trying to figure out, now, why is he doing this? Because clearly, uh, he was wearing the uniform. You know what I'm talking about? Not that the public schools have uniforms, but he was wearing the uniform. <laughs> he looked like he came out of the public school right there. Okay, no, no, I wasn't, that doesn't bother me in the sense that I want him to, uh, I have a heart for him, have compassion for him. I, that's just the way I work. Most teenagers, are, most teenagers I work with are wearing the uniform. So um, all of a sudden he puts his pad down, he puts his pencil down. I said, now we're getting somewhere. And he looked at me and he said, now preacher, he said, Look at the way you're dressed. Now, I was in a polo. I had khakis on. I had casual shoes on. That was, that's how I was dressed. He said, now, look how you're dressed. He said, you could never win any teenagers. You couldn't win my friends to Jesus. He said, they wouldn't listen to you. He says, you're, you look too different than they do. He said, now, look at me. He said, I look like them. They, they'll listen to me. So I said, okay, I'll play your game. How many people have you won to Jesus? That's a fair question, isn't it? And he looks at me, he gets a little embarrassed. He said, well, he said, uh, I think I've won, won one. I said, who's that? He said, my girlfriend. I'm thinking to myself, that's suspect. You know what I'm talking about? She made a decision just to keep you. Now, I'm not saying that stuff, but when you work with teenagers, you think things like that. And so, uh, uh, you know the amazing thing? I, I don't normally do this because God, any preacher out here, like Brother Jeremy, others who have the privilege of preaching the gospel a lot and seeing people saved, and we know it's not us. We know it's God. Brother Bosler, others. 
But I just felt like I needed to say it. So I looked at him. I said, you know, isn't that funny? I said, I have won thousands of teenagers to Jesus Christ. And I didn't say it, but I felt like saying it, looking like what you think is a nerd. I will tell you something, friends. You don't have to look like some grungy, whatever, you know, worldly-looking drummer on some rock band in order to win people to Jesus. You can win teenagers to Jesus looking like you love Jesus and you don't love the world. I, uh, I remember I was in this large Christian school, large, one of the largest we've ever been in, and uh, the pastor said, Brother Van Gelder, he said, I want, I want to get my staff in here, and I had a big ministry, couldn't get them all in, some of my upper staff, and I want to have a Q&A with you. And they were all friendly. I mean, they, were, they love our ministry, and so I wasn't threatened by it at all. It was a really good, good opportunity. And, and uh, they're, they're on the conservative side. They're, in a, they're in a certainly part of the country that wouldn't be as conservative. So, so anyway, I, uh, I was up asking questions, and, and the youth pastor, who's a dear friend, and uh, he said, Brother Van Gelder, he said, i got a question for you. He said, um, your team comes in, and he says, every time you've come in, and we had by that time come in at least probably two or three, I don't know, not a lot, but a few times. And he said, every time you come in, he said, our kids fall in love with your team. They absolutely are crazy about you. He said, but I got a question for you. He said, you guys come in. He was basically saying, you guys come in, you kind of all dress the same. You're kind of, you know, you, and he was basically saying, you kind of come in looking a little bit out of it. He said, why do the kids absolutely go crazy over your team? And I looked at him, I said, well, I'd like to think it's because they know that we love them. I want to tell you something, friends. You don't have to look like the latest rock star to impact teenagers for Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look like the latest rock star, you're going to undermine your ministry. Why? Because they're not looking for something the same. They want something different. <laughs> And what God's trying to help you understand is what you look like on the outside makes a difference. So he's saying, as obedient children, not fashion yourselves according to the former lust. In other words, you don't need to take your cues from the world. You don't need to dress like you did before you got saved, particularly if you are identified with a certain subculture, a pop uh, subculture. I remember several years ago, some of you remember Mike Fisher, and Mike Fisher hadn't been saved that long. We walk into this worldly Christian school, and uh, I remember Mike, he was kind of blown away, like, I can't believe this. He said, see those kids over there? He said, they listen to Green Day. He said, those kids over there, they listen to Pearl Jam. And he's going around the lunchroom, he's telling me what they listen to. So I said, Mike, how do you know that? Did you ask him? He said, no. I said, how do you know that? He said, because they're dressed like them. You know what God says? That's not what you should do. Listen, you don't have to look cool to win people to Jesus Christ. You know what you have to do? You have to love Jesus and follow him. <laughs> have joy in your heart. I tell you, our young people out recruiting, the greatest things those kids can need to see when you recruit them is that you love them. And although that's a, that's a spiritual dynamic, they won't even understand it, but they will be drawn when they realize somebody cares about them. So... Um, so we got godly appearance. A lot could be said there, but I think we've said enough. Let's go to the next thing. It says, verse number 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And those are famous verses. But notice that little word, 
conversation. Now, the word conversation is not just talking about your talk. Most of us know the old English word. Conversation was not just talk. In an old English situation, conversation would not just be talk. It would also be your walk. So the idea of conversation, most of us know this, is lifestyle. So God is saying, the second thing I'm concerned about, I'm not just concerned about your appearance, that's important, but I'm also concerned about your actions. So he's saying, I want you to be holy in all manner of lifestyle. Got a question for you. Is the music you listen to a part of lifestyle? Is the media you consume a part of lifestyle? Are the clothes in your closet a part of lifestyle? And the answer is, yeah, every one of them. Is the way you treat your wife or your husband a part of lifestyle? <laughs> yeah, all of it is. Lifestyle includes a bunch of things. I want to tell you something, friends, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but you mark it down. If you've got an anger problem in your home, you've got a lifestyle problem. And God's concerned about it. He's saying, you need to be holy. Listen, I am at, listen, this may shock you. I don't know how to say this. I'm just going to have to say it. I grew up in a Christian home. Didn't see a lot of anger in my home. My parents were growing spiritually. There were certainly few moments, frustration, whatever. But overall, saw a lot of victory in their lives, saw them grow, all that kind of thing. But I'm telling you, I've learned something as I've gotten older. This may be, sound funny. I've come to an unbelievable conclusion. And this may shock you. It certainly shocked me. Did you know that Christian homes have people who get angry? Did you know that? Did you know that husbands and wives fight? You know they fight in front of their kids? You say, preacher, don't say that. My kids are sitting here. They're going to know that that's what I do. Well, go home and apologize. <laughs> go home and say, you know, son, you know, daughter, I've been wrong. We're not doing this anymore. We're looking to Jesus, and if I do it, I'm getting it right. We're done with this stuff. Say, preacher, I, I, mean, I mean, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I've made resolutions before. It doesn't work. Well, notice what it says. Do you know why you're supposed to do it? Because the Bible tells us, because it's written, be ye holy for I am holy. You say, preacher, well, that doesn't sound very good. In other words, I'm supposed to be like Jesus? That doesn't sound like it'll work. Well, I'm telling you this, friends, and don't miss this. When you got saved, you were put into Jesus. So Jesus is in you. I personally don't like the word Christ-like. You say, you don't? No, I like the word Christ's life. Change one letter. I can't be Christ-like. You ever tried to be like Jesus and failed miserably? Because we can't be like Jesus in our own strength. But I will tell you, Jesus can be like Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus has no trouble being like Jesus. And you're in union with Jesus, which means you need to get a hold of the fact like we're talking about this morning, that you got saved. Jesus did an unbelievable work in your life. You are righteous in the sight of Jesus. You got the righteousness of Jesus you're in union with right now. You just need to believe it. And you can be holy because he's holy and you're in union with him. It's a remarkable truth that we somehow don't grasp. You know what God is saying? Be what you are, because that's what you are. You're in union with me. And listen, friends, it starts with making decisions. It starts with, I'm not been thinking right, man. We're getting this thing up. Listen, I'm telling you, I, I will tell you, I, I believe I was in the Army. Somebody in the Army who works in the psychology, who was in a service I preached in, came to me and said, Brother Van Gelderen, she said, I've worked with all kinds of Army uh, of families, and one of the things I deal with is the anger issue. He said, I've never known a soldier, never known a soldier, a secular soldier, to get victory over anger. I have never known one. He said, she, he, I think it was a she, she said, I have seen a few Christians. 
You know what basically he's saying? It's a miracle. You know, lifestyle, I'm not going to preach a message on anger, but I thought I better throw it out there because I'm telling you, friends, one of the key issues of lifestyle is living the lifestyle in your home. And one of the things that will destroy your home is anger. And I will tell you this, you've got a problem, get behind closed doors, deal with it behind closed doors, but don't drag your poor kids into this stuff. You need to apologize if you have. So I'm done with it. I'm not going there anymore. By the grace of God, we're dealing with this. And if I do, we're getting it right. We're not dealing with it. We're not going there anymore. See, that's what we're talking about, friends. Hoping for grace is believing God can change me. I'm expecting him to change me. And I'm dependent on him to change me. And I'm going to take steps toward that. In other words, faith and obedience are working together. That's what we talked about in James 2. That obedience is a means, and that obedience in the anger situation is going home and apologizing. Try it. Just try it. You know what's going to happen? If you get honest with your family, you're going to get graced. God's going to start showing up in your life. And some of you kids, as I preached to you just a moment ago about your problem, when it comes to disrespect, you need to go home and you need to apologize for being disrespectful to your parents. See, all I'm simply saying is God is saying, listen, get serious about this. He's saying, listen, my first command is not to be holy because you couldn't do it. He said, my first command is, listen, in the atmosphere of rejecting wrong thinking, embracing Bible thinking, continuing to live a Christian life in that Bible thinking, I want you to depend upon my grace and expect it and take decisions, take steps of obedience, independence upon me and watch it happen. But I'm telling you, it's not going to happen if you don't take the step of obedience. Faith without works is dead. That's why I get so bothered when the interpretation goes out the wrong window. Because what God is saying is, you can talk about faith all you want. You can memorize verses on faith. But until you get a hold of the fact that faith always results in obedience when it comes to Christian life faith, you're going to miss out because that kind of faith is dead. And if you grit your teeth and try to obey in your own strength, that's not going to work either. That'll crash and burn. And what we're telling here in 1 Peter is, expect it. Depend on it unreservedly and let it result in godly appearance i'll tell you over the years i'll conclude with this over the years i'm just going to tell you over the years one of the greatest things that my wife and i have the privilege of watching is kids take steps of faith when it comes to personal holiness now back when i was a kid a lot more of this stuff happened but uh certainly i think there's all kinds of reasons why, as we talked about this morning, some of this has fallen on hard times. But I'm telling you, I remember a girl in Orlando, Florida, coming with a big, huge sack of immodest clothes. She came to the fire. She gave a testimony. She said, I'm done with it, man. I'm not wearing this junk anymore. She threw it on the fire and burned it up. And do you know what? She never wore those clothes again. You know why? Because they're burned up. You know what that's called? A step of obedience. I think of a pastor who God's using greatly. Back in the 70s, he was an airman in the Air Force, came to the church he actually now pastors. He can take you to the exact spot in the back hallway where on a special Sunday he came forward and got saved. He said one of the first things God did is said, you got junk music in your life, deal with it. He said he gathered up all his vinyl. I know this dates the illustration. He walked out to the burn barrel. That really dates the illustration. And... Uh, Especially for all you people in liberal blue states, okay? Red states know what burn barrels are. Okay, but anyway, uh, I shouldn't have said that. Okay, but anyway, and so uh, uh, got all his vinyl together, went over to that burn barrel, and he said, I burned all my music. He said, I wouldn't be in the ministry today if I hadn't burned that music. 
I'm just telling you. I have seen thousands of CDs burned. Thousands. Where kids say, I'm done, man. I remember a kid named Josh. He has a steely lower jaw. He's now serving the Lord in a distant state from where we were at that time. But his steely jaw, he said, man, I'm done. I've been sneaking the junk music, worldly music. I'm done with it, man. Threw it in the fire. He's never been the same. That was 15 some years ago. I'm telling you, we've lost this faith trigger. We have lost it. There comes times when you say, I'm done with it. I've seen magazines thrown in the fire. I've seen VHS videos thrown in the fire. I've seen books thrown in the fire. I've seen all kinds of things thrown in the fire. Some things I'm thinking, what's wrong with that? That pair of gym shoes looked okay to me. But I may, you know, sometimes. Uh, but most of the time, I've pretty much known why it was being thrown in the fire. Kids come and say, I'm done with it, man. It's, uh, I'm done with it. I can't take this anymore. There's a young man in this room. I won't embarrass him by telling his name. He was on our team. And one of the last weeks of our tour, he had some clothing with him. And he even got up in front of the student body and said, you know what? When I bought this, I bought it for the wrong reason. I wanted to look like the world. He said, I'm done with it. He said, I'm thrown in the fire. And he's in the auditorium this, tonight. I'm telling you, friends, some of you got to get to the burn barrel. You with me on this? Some of you got to start dealing with stuff. Hoping for grace is not a pie-in-the-sky type deal. Hoping for grace is saying, God, I'm expecting you to do it, so I'm going to obey you. I'm going to step out and deal with this stuff. I don't Listen, if God's going to deliver me from the wrong kind of music, I don't need it anymore. You say, for a preacher, couldn't I sell it and get a little bit of money? Okay, so you're going to go that route, hey? Sell something that's da damaging, sell the poison so somebody else can be poisoned. That's why I love it when they burn it. You say, why? Acts 19 seems to indicate that's how you deal with junk. You burn it. All I'm simply saying, friends, I don't know what God's dealing with you about, but I'm telling you, if this is coming across to you as, wow, that's negative. It's not negative. I've never known grace to be negative. Grace is like positive. It's like God working in your life, giving you joy and fulfillment. I don't know how many times a teenager has thrown the music in the fire and said, you know, Brother Van Gelderen, when I threw that stuff in the fire, it lifted me. Something lifted off of me. Say, so you believe it? Absolutely, I believe it. I'm just saying, listen, there's maybe some freshmen, maybe a sophomore, junior here. you got to do some plow burning. You know what I'm talking about? you got to go to the burn barrel and get some junk thrown out of your life and say, you know what, I've been compromising. i got to get this junk out of my life. So as we deal with some of these issues, we're laying the foundation that really when it comes right down to it, hoping for grace is depending upon God and expecting Him to do it. So we're going to obey Him because we're expecting Him to do it, whether it's godly appearance or godly action.